Well, good evening. Can you hear me? That's good news. Um, very good to be with you in Hastings. Um, it's a very, very big privilege and an honor to be able to serve you here down on the south coast. We were a little bit worried that we weren't going to make it this evening because on the A21 we were attacked by a pheasant. Uh, I'm not kidding. I've been brought up in North Norfolk where there are pheasants everywhere on country roads and I've never ever run into a pheasant in my life but this pheasant flew right across us and went straight bang into the windscreen and has left the most almighty mess of our front windshield. So I'm very grateful that we have got here. Clearly there is a battle for Hastings and uh, we're glad to be here safe and in one piece. It reminded me of a story of a poor pastor who was dreadfully assaulted and afflicted by a woman in his church that wouldn't stop sending him CDs and books and booklets and pamphlets that were all on the same theme. And the theme was basically this, Pastor, you've got to become more spirit-filled. There's something not quite right with you. And this poor man suffered this for months and months and months and months. And I thought one day he just completely had enough. And he thought to himself, I've got to get out. It was a beautiful sunny day. I've got to get away. I can't go on any longer being in my house and having these things put through my letterbox. It's just too much. So he went out a glorious sunny day. He wound down the windows of his car and drove for about an hour and a half into the heart of the countryside. He was beginning to feel much, much better when he found himself on a very, very thin country lane where there was really properly only room for one car. To his horror, he saw another car careering towards him, and guess who was driving the car? <laughs> it's the woman who had been giving him so much grief with this you-must-become-more-spiritual line of thinking. And as the two cars got closer and closer, the man, the pastor's ire began to become hotter and hotter. And worse still, they just managed to avoid one another somehow by the grace of God, but her window was down as well. And as they drove past one another, she shouted the one word, pig, at him. He, even though as a pastor, was overcome by fleshly emotions and shouted back the word, cow. <laughs> then he drove around the corner and ran into the pig. Tick-tock, tick-tock. A little while, some people are just getting it right now. I feel sorry for that poor man. Well, now I'm just about to afflict and assault you with the same thing <laughs> that that woman was doing in that story. I'm just going to mention a few resources that we have available on our table. These are not designed to make you feel condemned because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are designed to encourage you and to bless you. So let me just mention a few. Uh, this book is hot off the press. It is distinguished in my mind for being the smallest book that I've ever written in my entire life. It's called the 100-verse Bible. I take 50 verses from the Old Testament and 50 from the New, and I track the story of the Father's love for humanity through those 50 Old Testament verses and 50 New Testament verses. I've recently rather annoyingly since publishing this book, come across the most amazing quotation from St. Augustine, who said this, that if the whole Bible was to be encapsulated in one single sentence, then it would, like the waves of the sea, resound with this thought, the Father loves you. What a great quote that is. I wish I'd known that before writing this book, before publishing it, because that's really what this booklet is all about. It's tracking the greatest love story ever written, the story of the Bible, the 100-verse Bible. You can give this to non-Christians as well. There's an introduction where I talk about the Bible as my father's book, comparing it to the one book that my adoptive father ever wrote, and there's a conclusion in which I take the 100 verses and turn them into a love letter from the father to the reader. So that's the 100-verse Bible. I'll be more brief about the other products, I promise you. There's Breakout, which is the story of what happened at St. Andrew's Chorley Wood in the 12 years 
that I had the great honor of being vicar there. I left in January of 2009, but in the last four or five years of our time there, the congregation broke out of the building, and we established 32 missional communities meeting in coffee shops, school halls, community centers, homeless shelters, and the like, ministering to the deaf, to the learning disabled, troubled teens, to drug-addicted people, homeless people, all kinds of groups of people, and neighborhoods too. We saw a stunning move of the Holy Spirit. This book, we're really thrilled, just a few weeks ago was voted Christianity's Book of the Year for 2009. If you have a heart for seeing the church breaking out of the box and doing entrepreneurial, adventurous, innovative, creative, lay-led, spirit-filled, God-glorifying mission, something of that nature, then this book may well encourage you. It's, um, it's really, really very, very pleasing to see how the spirit behind that book has been grabbing hold of many church leaders all over the world. Just a few other resources to mention. At the Father's House Trust, our big vision is to take the Father's love to the fatherless and to bring an end to the global pandemic of fatherlessness on the earth. We believe that fatherlessness or father absence, as it's now being increasingly called in the corridors of power in this country, is the number one reason for our social ills in the United Kingdom and in many other countries as well. We feel we have a mandate from the Holy Spirit as a trust, we're a charitable trust, to bring healing first to the church because we believe there are many fatherless people within the church. Many people who know Jesus but who don't have a full intimate relationship with their father which is part of their inheritance in Christ. Much of that is down to being poorly fathered because fathers are so absent in our culture. So we run a few resources now that we've just recently put together. This one is a three-CD set called Healing the Orphan Heart. If you feel like you know Jesus, but you don't have an intimate understanding, knowledge, and experience of Abba Father, because you have been wounded by your own earthly father, then this three-CD set will greatly help you. Look, there's only a certain amount that we as a team can achieve among you by serving you here tonight. In 45 minutes, I can do very little. I'm praying for acceleration, intensification of grace, and that you'll get a lot in a very little. But if you take these resources, you listen to them privately or through small groups or what have you, I can guarantee that the Holy Spirit will move and bring healing to your hearts. And that's what we exist for as a trust. So that's Healing the Orphan Heart. This CD set is called The Father You've Been Waiting For. It's a professional recording at UCB Studios in which I read the book version of The Father You've Been Waiting For, which is a 10-chapter book on the father figure in Luke 15, the parable that's wrongly named the parable of the prodigal son, but should really be named the parable of the extravagantly loving, recklessly affectionate, endlessly forgiving and wonderfully generous dad, something like that. And... Uh, this, this is really an exploration of ten characteristics of the Father in that magnificent story and how each one is a window onto the Father heart of God because Jesus told that story in order to deconstruct, undermine and subvert the image of God that the teachers of the law were peddling in his day. They were misrepresenting God as a lawyer and what Jesus is doing in this story is saying, I want to realign your focus on who God really is. He's not a lawyer, he's a lover. He is the lover of your soul and he has run hard after you in great compassion in order to wrap his strong and tender arms around you and love the hell out of you. So that's the father you've been waiting for. That's a four and a half hour one, so do be careful that you don't start listening to that while you're driving. You might fall asleep. This CD set is called The Nurturing Heart of God. We're known as a ministry for ministering to father wounds. That's really our primary focus. First of all, in the church and then in the world where we believe there is a pandemic of fatherlessness. But we have come across increasingly on our travels, both throughout the UK and all over the place, many, many people in the church who have, he, uh, who have wounds from their mothers, not just their fathers. So this CD set is called The Nurturing Heart of God. The first CD is all about the mother-like qualities of God. And the second CD is all about 
what we need from our earthly mothers and what happens to us when we're denied what C.S. Lewis called storgy love, which is the affectionate love, the unconditional nurturing love of a mum. The third CD set, a third CD rather, is all about how to get healed from your mother wounds. And what we argue in this particular CD set is that it's only El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, who can make up the love deficit from our earthly mothers. Now, this really arises out of two years of intensive healing in my own heart. I've had two mums in my life. My biological mother abandoned me and my twin sister when we were babies. And then my adoptive mum was extremely strict, old Victorian model mum. And so I've had to work through a whole bunch of issues and been taken on a journey of very deep healing in this area. I mean, I couldn't even begin to speak about the things I've just mentioned to you tonight if I hadn't have been on this journey myself. So a lot of this arises not just out of study of Scripture, but out of personal testimony as well. We released this teaching for the first time in Winchester in January of this year. And even though the recording isn't a professional studio recording, I asked that we would keep it because on that day in Winchester, the Holy Spirit came in extraordinary power in all three of the ministry times. So I've asked that we keep the ministry times on these CDs because you can actually sense the presence of the Holy Spirit as you listen to them again. And I can really assure you that it will be a blessing to you. It's the ministry times at the end of the talks where God really moves, where El Shaddai makes up the love deficit in people's lives. And we've had the most, I don't think it's any lie to say, it's not any exaggeration to say, we've had the most extraordinary testimony as a team from that one day alone. So I want to commend that to you, the nurturing heart of God. There are lots of other resources as well that are over there on the tables. And my wife, Ali, and my youngest son, Sam, will be glad to serve you at the end of this meeting. Adverts over. Thank you for coming tonight when you could be watching Australia shocking Germany. I'm very, very grateful to you and I'll try to make it worth your while. I want to speak to you this evening on the subject of being healed for the harvest. I honestly believe that there is a door of great opportunity open right now for the church in this nation. As things become more and more difficult, uncertain, insecure and turbulent for the world, I believe that even though it's difficulty for the world, it's opportunity for the church. So there is an open door of opportunity. We're seeing that right now at the Father's House Trust. Doors are opening in extraordinary places. Right at the heart of number 10 Downing Street, a door has opened to us as a trust to actually shape policy now for the foreseeable future. Policy that will promote fatherhood and address the pandemic of fatherlessness in this nation. I can't say any more to you than that, except to say that doors are opening. There is something changing in the climate. And I wonder if you sense it. I wonder if down here in Hastings, you're in touch enough spiritually with what's happening right across this country, and indeed by the sound of it in your own town, to see and understand that the seasons are changing. The winter is coming to an end. Springtime is on its way. There is a real day of opportunity for the church. Yet I feel in my heart, one of the things we must make sure about is that we're healed for the harvest. It is harvest time, but we understand and we know as a ministry that hurting people end up hurting people. Hurting people end up hurting people. We don't want to release onto the streets of Hastings, the streets of Folkestone and other towns and cities of this nation, unhealed people that are actually going to leave non-Christians feeling beaten up. What we want to see is free people setting people free. I believe that it wasn't just forgiveness that was won for us at Calvary, but it was also freedom. Freedom in Christ. I... I don't know about you, but in the words of my good friend Bill Johnson, I want to get everything that Jesus paid for. I want to be free, not just forgiven. I mean, I'm sad that some Christians don't know just how forgiven they are because of the blood of Jesus and how the church needs to have a restoration of the blood of Jesus in its theology, preaching, life, and experience. But we are also free. 
We are free people. We don't have to be hooked into our past history anymore. We don't have to be bound by our mother and father wounds. We don't have to be ticking time bombs ready to detonate in poor, unsuspecting people's faces. We can be truly free because it was for freedom Christ set us free. Now, are you saying, Mark, that you're perfect? No, I describe myself as a wounded healer. I'm a work in progress. You can probably already see that I'm the unfinished article. But I am committed to the journey of healing. Because I believe that when I came to Christ and my sins were forgiven at the cross, not everything in my life was sorted. I brought some baggage into my Christian life because I was orphaned when I was a little boy. There was some stuff. There was some stuff that needed dealing with. And so I committed myself over a period of time to a lifelong journey of having my heart healed. And I'm hopeful that by the time if I get to the age of 70 or 80 that I might be a lot more well in my soul than I have been in the past. But we're all of us, I believe, we're all of us called to be healed for the harvest. It is harvest time. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's harvest time. It's harvest time. Jesus said in John chapter 4, Read this uh, great verse that come up on the screen right now. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. I was in my gym recently in Watford. I try to go there three times a week. And I'm struggling away on the cross trainer of doom. And I'm there next to a friend of mine and I'm trying to encourage him in his Christian walk. We're the only two people in the gym And somebody comes in, he's a pastor, he's the only other pastor besides me in this totally pagan gym that I go to. And this pastor, he says to me, Bishop Mark, now I'm not a bishop, but he insists on calling me bishop. Bishop, he says, I tell him off for saying bishop, but he says, never mind. Bishop, he says, what's happening spiritually right now in your opinion? And I said to him, without even hesitating, I said, it's harvest time. It's a great time to be sowing and reaping into non-Christian people's lives. He said, do you think so? I said, yes, it's harvest time. As I struggled, puffed, panted and sweated away at the cross trainer of doom. He then went over to the running machine. He's a much fitter man than me and started running and running really hard. And a man came in who works in the gym. He's called Jamie and went and stood alongside my pastor friend. This was a big mistake. Jamie asked my pastor friend how he was, and within the next five minutes, the pastor, while he was running on the running machine, led Jamie to Jesus. I've never seen that done before. I've never seen somebody run and witness and lead someone to Christ before. Anyway, Jamie went out. He's now a Christian. The pastor comes up behind me. Comes up behind me on his way out. I'm still there sweating away. He says, Mark, it really is harvest time. I said, I told you. It's harvest time. He said, would you come to my small church in North Watford and speak on this theme and would you decree over my small community of passionate believers that it's harvest time and would you then pray for an impartation of sowing and reaping for them? I said, I would be absolutely delighted. When do you want me to come? He said, next Wednesday night. So it just so happens I'm free. So I went with a friend of mine to that little church and I preached on harvest time and I decreed over them it's harvest time. I prayed for an impartation of sowing and reaping and the power of God came upon this little community of believers in a hall in North Watford. I went away feeling encouraged and the next morning I'm driving along in Watford when my Blackberry goes off and I answer the phone while I'm driving. Don't worry, hands-free, Bluetooth, get over it. So I'm, I'm talking to my friend, this friend who... I've just visited his church last night. He said, I've just been back to the gym. I said, oh, well done. He said, I've been in the sauna. There's only one other person in the sauna, professional footballer, Premier League footballer. He said, I've just led him to Jesus in the sauna. He said, it's harvest time. I said, I told you, it's harvest time. (laughs) Week went by. Seven days later, I'm I'm driving around in Watford in my car. Blackberry goes off. I answer the phone. Don't worry, Bluetooth, hands-free, get over it. Same guy. Pastor rings up. He says, Mark, you wouldn't believe it. In the last week on the streets of Watford, me and my church, we've led 278 people to Jesus in Watford. Come on, church. And he said, it really is harvest time. I said, I told you, it's harvest time. Then he said this to me. He said, I have just been on the phone to my dad. 
He has been against what I've been doing for the whole of my Christian adult life. Doesn't believe I should be a pastor. He's an anti-theist. He said just over the phone, on, over the last few minutes, I've led him to Jesus. My dad is now a Christian. He's in the kingdom of heaven. He said it really is harvest time. That was the thing that convinced me, you know, more than anything else, because it's the hardest place of all in your own family. And he had led his dad to Jesus. I'm telling you, friends, it's harvest time. And it's time for us to get healed up for the harvest. All over this country, there are extraordinary things going on. Street pastors going out onto the streets. And in Watford, where the street pastors have been ministering, the crime rate has gone down dramatically. There are healing on the streets teams all over Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, ministering supernatural signs, wonders, and miracles in the name of Jesus. And non-Christians are coming into the kingdom because the power of God is convincing people that Jesus is real, He's alive, He reigns, and He rocks. Now, we can be encouraged by all of this, but we must make sure that as people go out and doing hot healing on the streets, they're doing treasure hunting, they're doing street pastors' work, whatever it is, a great breakout that's happening all over this country, missional communities going out with new leaders in place, that orphan hearts are healed. Now, we're not sending orphans and slaves out onto the streets, but we're sending adopted sons and daughters who know their identity in Christ, who've got nothing to prove, who don't care what anybody else thinks of them because they know that God the Father loves them, likes them, and is especially fond of them. We need that kind of healing in the body right now. So I want to talk to you about being healed for the harvest. If you have a Bible, you're probably wondering when I'm going to turn to it right now. John chapter 4 Verses 4 to 42, it's a story I've come back to time and time again. And this story, I won't read the whole thing to you because it's a very long story, but I will paraphrase it for you very briefly. Jesus has to go through Samaria. Samaria was the most despised region from a Jewish perspective in the first century world. Jesus has to go because the Father is leading and drawing him through Samaria because the Father has a divine appointment in store for His Son. Jesus, hot, weary, and thirsty, sits down by a well outside the town of Sychar. And there as He is resting, having sent His disciples into town in order to have lunch, a woman arrives at the well. Now, she's not a Jewish woman. She's a Samaritan woman. Now, Jesus should have observed basic Jewish protocols at this point. As a Jewish rabbi, in the presence of a woman that he did not know, he technically should have withdrawn at least 20 paces away from the well where the woman was. In fact, as a Jewish man, in the presence of a Samaritan woman, it should really have been an awful lot further because Jewish men in the time of Jesus had a most unpleasant proverb that highlighted the depths of their racial prejudice. It went something like this. This is the PG version. I'm not going to give you the 18 version. The PG version goes something like this. The daughters of the Samaritans are dirty from the cradle. That was the proverb knocking around in first century Jewish culture, especially amongst men. Jewish men despised Samaritan women. Jesus should not have been even conversing with her, but he asks her for a drink. She says, what are you doing, a Jewish man speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? She straight away spots the incongruity of what's going on. Jesus talks about living water. He moves straight into a subject that she's going to readily understand. Jesus is gloriously relevant. Have you ever noticed that about him? To the tax collector, he says, let's talk about money. To the fisherman, he says, let's talk about fishing. And to the water carrier, he says, let's talk about living water. Jesus is always relentlessly relevant to the people that he's talking to. Same basic message, but different language, different metaphors for each context. She gets, after initially misunderstanding him, gets quite intrigued by his offer of living water and says, sir, please give me some. And he says to her, well, go get your husband, because what I have for you is for your whole family. She says, I have no husband. And then he nails her with a prophecy. 
It's a really good book about prophetic evangelism. It's on sale on the bookstore. I wrote it. So if you want to learn more about how to prophesy in evangelism, do buy it and start practicing it because it's one of the most underused gifts that we have in our utility belts as Christians. I have seen my own experience prophesying over lost people. I've watched them go from minus 100, unbelief, hostility, to minus 1, almost at the edge of faith and receptivity in the matter of a few nanoseconds. The power of the prophetic in kick-starting the harvest is a whole subject to itself. Jesus prophesies over, says, well, you're telling the truth. You have been married to five men, and the man that you're now living with is not your husband. And how does she react? She says, sir, I see you are a prophet. Because this is what prophets do. Prophets read people's hearts. Hearts to a prophet's mind are like, open books. And she says, well, let's talk about worship. You notice how non-Christians do that. When they're trying to change the subject, they're in the context of spiritual people. They say, oh, let's talk about something religious. So she says, it's all about worship. You know, our, our tradition as Samaritans is that we worship on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus says, oh, but listen to me. It's good news here. There's coming a time when everyone will be able to worship Abba Father in spirit and in truth, and you won't have to go to certain set religious places, you'll be able any time, any place, anywhere to worship the world's greatest dad. She thinks, that's good news, that's something exciting, and something's triggered off in her soul. And she says, you know, when the Messiah comes, he will explain all these things to us. Because even the Samaritans had an expectation that the Messiah would come, and Jesus looks at her, dramatic moment would make a great movie moment. He says, I, I am. That's the original Greek. I, I am. Now, who says I am in the Old Testament? I wonder. Tick, tick, tick. Five seconds. You've got to get the answer in five seconds. Yes, you got it. It's God. Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals his name to Moses, I am who I am. The first person that Jesus discloses his divinity to in John's Gospel is a woman, is a Samaritan woman, not even a Jewish person, not a Jewish man. The despised Samaritan woman is given a revelation that the one speaking to her at the well is God with skin on. She says, oh my word. In whose presence am I right now? This is the I am in human flesh. And she goes running off. Jesus never did get that drink. Running off into town. And she starts to witness to everyone in the town. She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And at this point, when she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, some men in the town run in the opposite direction. But the rest <laughs> of the town become immediately quite intrigued and they start making their way, following this passionate woman towards Jesus on the edge of town. At this point, the disciples come back, the 12 men. Now, what have they been doing? They've been to McDonald's in Sychar. They've had supersized meals. They are now very, very satisfied. They come back and they now feel guilty because they've eaten well, but Jesus hasn't. And they say, Rabbi, please eat something. Jesus says, I have food that you know not of. At this point, they think that he has been hiding food or maybe supernaturally creating food, but he's been doing neither. He qualifies his statement by saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. This is what nourishes me. And then he says, lift up your eyes because the fields right now are ripe under harvest. And as he says that, the disciples who have brought no one to Jesus... They turn around and they see this woman, this extraordinary apostolic lady, for she is apostolic at this point. She's been sent and she's brought people to Jesus, bringing hundreds of people from her village to the edge of town, not just to a literal physical well, but to a spiritual well that has been opened by the Messiah himself. And these several hundred Samaritan men and women 
at the end of the story say these words, Jesus, you are the saviour of the world. An outrageously political statement in the ancient world because there was only one person who was allowed the title saviour of the world in the first century and that was Caesar. But these Samaritans say, no, it's not the one in a great big palace in Rome with a huge army that is Lord, but it is this man, this rabbi Jesus, is the Lord of the universe. That man in Rome tries to rule the world with the love of power, but this man Jesus, he's going to conquer everything with the power of love. He truly is saviour of the world. It's a dramatic story, especially when you understand it within its first century context. Now what happens to this woman? She is, for me, a prototype of what all of us need to experience. She is a woman who is healed for the harvest. When she comes to Jesus, she's very unhealed. She goes through very quickly three stages that take us often months and sometimes even years. She is given a fast-track pass. I wonder if you've ever been given a fast-track pass. I mean, I'm used to going on airplanes and turning right. Anyone else? You know what I mean by turning right into the economy section? And you look at the people who turn left. And in fact, as you go into the plane and head right, you look longingly left <laughs> just to see what lies beyond the veil. And there is always a veil, isn't there? There's a curtain, usually a purple curtain, that's drawn at the moment when they start serving all the good stuff so that you cannot see. Because you know the rule is the nearer you get to the cockpit, the better off you are. And I sit in economy and I'm finding myself often singing that great Christian chorus, Beyond the Veil, I Long to Come. As you wonder in cattle class how the really privileged ones are living near the snout of the plane. One time I was doing some prophetic evangelism at a check-in desk at Virgin Atlantic at Heathrow. And the woman behind the counter got absolutely nailed by a prophetic word, and so she upgraded me. So I want to recommend prophetic evangelism. <laughs> really want to recommend prophetic evangelism for all sorts of reasons, but particularly for the great and glorious upgrade anointing. So one time, you know, she gave me this pass, this purple pass. It just said the two words, fast track. I thought, I now qualify. I am one of the fast tracking elite of the world. So I... I pass through queues. I don't, I don't queue. I don't have to queue. I don't have to queue at all. All the plebs are queuing, but now, <laughs> because I have this purple pass, here I am speeding like a roadrunner through all the sections of Heathrow. I'm shown parts of Heathrow I don't even know exist. I'm given all sorts of treats. Would sir like some chicken satay? Oh, so would, yes. And I turn left. And I go beyond the veil. And not just beyond one veil, but the upgrade anointing was so strong that day <laughs> that I went beyond two. In fact, I thought at one point I was going to actually be flying the plane. <laughs> so great was the anointing. Arrived at the other end, feeling totally refreshed after a transatlantic flight. No jet lag. Glory. Hallelujah. Having been waited on hand and foot, a woman in a white coat who looked like an angel came up to me, looked me in the face. Beautiful face she had too. Said, would sir like some treatment during the flight? So what's treatment? Said, would sir like a shoulder massage and a neck massage? I said, sir, would certainly like that. Thank you so much. <laughs> All part of the fast track process. Arrived at the other end. Sir got fast-tracked through all of the sections of Logan Boston International Airport. Sir got through to his bags before the plebs. Sir got into the taxi without queuing, like all the plebs had to queue. Sir enjoyed the fast-track pass. There's a lot to be said for the upgrade anointing. Do pray for me to receive it more often. It's wonderful when you get fast-tracked. Acceleration is a glorious thing. Everyone say acceleration. acceleration. This woman experiences acceleration. She goes through three stages with a fast-track pass from Jesus that take us, if you're anything like me, not just months but sometimes even years because it's a journey of healing we're on. But in the presence of the one who is God with skin on, this woman 
gets a fast-track pass. Let me just tell you briefly the three stages that she goes through. Stage number one. It's the in stage. And the in stage, if I may apply it to us, is all about me. Now, automatically, some of you will be having a reaction right now. Can it be right that you can have a season of the heart which is all about you? Yes, it can be right. You see, all of us, we cannot just go on giving out in ministry. There are times and seasons in our lives when the pressure begins to tell and when things start to surface, other people can perhaps see it in our lives and it's time for us to stand aside and allow ourselves to be ministered to. We're all of us like onions. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're an onion. You may think that's not very complimentary. Here I am, I've come here tonight to be encouraged. I could have been watching Australia shock the Germans. But here I am, and he's just called me an onion. Thank you very much. Now, there is a point to this. I'm not saying you look literally like an onion. It is a metaphor. What is it about onions? Onions have layers. Have you ever noticed that? And when layers of the onion come off, you cry. I know this much from cooking, though I am not a dab hand. I'm not a frequent expert. I have my wife sitting on the front row here, so there can be no evangelistic comments tonight about my cooking skills. I know this much about cooking, though. When you peel an onion, your eyes water. And there hasn't yet been anything invented that can offset or prevent this. You know, I remember one time trying to cook with onions with goggles from the swimming pool on, I still managed to weep like a baby. Somebody, I come into the kitchen sometimes, I see my wife, Ali, she's cooking, she's in floods of tears, and I'm thinking to myself, what's happened now at work? She says, there's nothing, it's just the onions. It's just the onions. We're all of us onions, we have layers. And there are seasons in our lives when sovereignly the Father says to us, right, it's time for you right now to receive some ministry because there's a layer in this thing called your soul that needs now to come off. And the trouble with it is we resist it like the plague. We think, I can't for a moment give myself that time because I'm frightened that if I do, there may be tears. Well, sometimes there are tears, but the Bible says there are tears in the night, but there is joy in the morning. And so my recommendation is always when you hit one of these seasons of the heart, which is the end stage, and it's your time to receive some healing in the presence of Jesus, that you say yes quickly. Because the quicker you say yes to the tears in the night, the quicker you're going to enjoy the joy, joy, joy in the morning. And it is all so worthwhile. This woman is in a classic in stage. You can tell because as she encounters Jesus right at the beginning, as we'll see in the next slide, her language is very me-centered. When Jesus starts talking about living water, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. She recognizes that she has a deep-seated hole in her soul. She is spiritually thirsty. She is emotionally desperate. She has been looking for intimacy and love in all the wrong places. I think she has a classic mindset. It's like this. I need a man, but I don't trust a man. So she's been in five relationships. She's now in a sixth. She's in a repetitive pattern or cycle of toxic and destructive behavior that we would today call relationship addiction or obsessive love. This woman really needs an encounter with Jesus. How many of you know when you have an encounter with Jesus, your shadow is exposed? Every one of us has a shadow, as this next slide will show you. We all have a shadow. When we come into the presence of the light, our shadow is revealed. When we come into the presence of the light of the world, our spiritual shadow is revealed. What's our shadow? It's the place where all of our secret hurts, secret habits and secret hang-ups are contained. Paul Young, in his great book called The Shack, would call it The Shack. It's the place where we need to do business with the Trinity, where our great sadnesses tend to lie. Jesus is now with this woman, 
and her shadow is exposed. What kind of wound does she have? Well, a number of clues. Let me list some to you now on the slide that's coming. Here are some classic clues of woundedness. First of all, hiding. She's a woman in hiding. She comes to the well at noon. That's the time of the day when nobody else would come to the well to draw water. It's the hottest time of the day. Only at the early stages of the morning or early stages of the evening would people come to the well to draw water. Why is she coming at the hottest time of the day to the well? It's because she doesn't want to meet anyone. She's a woman in hiding. She's a lonely woman. You know, James Jordan says this, loneliness is not being alone physically, but loneliness is not having anyone to really share your heart with. I believe that describes many people actually inside the church. You may be here right now surrounded by people but profoundly lonely in the sense that you've not really found an intimate relationship in your life where you feel that you have someone that you can truly share your heart with. That's true loneliness. I think that describes this woman. She's mistrustful. She says to him, why are you talking to me? You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. She misinterprets all that he's saying. To begin with, when she says, you haven't even brought a bucket to draw water from the well with, she's interpreting him literally when she should be interpreting him spiritually. Striving. Oh, sir, please give me some of this water so I won't have to keep coming back every day to this awful well. So hot, so, so hot. I don't want to come here anymore. She's a woman who's striving. Maybe she's striving to earn acceptance from other people. She hasn't yet learnt that the real lesson in life is not I do, therefore I am, but I am, therefore I do. She's a woman with selectivity. (laughs) You remember when she says, I have no husband. I think we would call that being economical with the truth, when she's been married to five and is living de facto with a man who's her six. And then attachments. She's addicted to relationships with men. She's looking in other men for what she can only find from Abba Father. As so many people in our culture today are, both male and female. Now what are these symptomatic of? They are symptoms and signs of what we at the Father's house call the orphan heart condition. They are seven out of 21 signs and symptoms. Over the last four or five years, we've identified 21 signs and symptoms of someone who has an orphan heart. This woman shows seven out of 21 in a few minutes in the presence of Jesus. That's one-third of the total signs and symptoms. So her wound, the primal wound in her life, in my view, is separation from a father's love. Now, I came to Christ in 1977. I was born again in a wonderful revival at my school. The Holy Spirit just moved in great power. There were only six people who knew Jesus when I arrived, six pupils who knew Jesus when I started in 1974. By the time I left in 1978, over 300 of the students knew Jesus. That's how big a revival it was. And it was in an academically proud and arrogant context where secular humanism ruled the roost, and where it was incredibly uncool to know about and talk about Jesus. But God moved in that very hard ground, and I got saved. So in 1977, January the 18th, I woke up, having been born again the night before, and I knew and loved Jesus, and everything in my life was all about Jesus. I just wanted to learn everything I could about Jesus. But you know what? For ten years, I knew Jesus but I didn't know the father. Why? Because my own biological father had walked out on me and my twin sister before we were even born. I don't even know his name. I don't even know if he's still alive in the world today. So the word father in my life had a negative resonance to it. When I heard other Christians around me talking about God as a father, I couldn't relate to that at all personally. And I think I'm more and more normal in that respect in the church today, in a fatherless world. We've got many Christians inside the church who have been poorly fathered and for whom the name father is problematic when it's applied to God. So I got ordained as an incomplete Christian. I got ordained as an Anglican clergyman in 1986 as a thoroughly unhealed but forgiven sinner. 
and I became a curate in a place called Stapleford on the edge of the town, the city of Nottingham. And the first thing I was given at the age of 26 was a youth group. This is a standard punishment in the Church of England. <laughs> if you are young and if you are ordained, uh, you are automatically given the teenage program to look after. Even if you don't like teenagers. That described me perfectly. I was pathologically uh, hateful of teenagers. And what made the matter worse was that there were only six teenagers in my youth group and they pathologically hated me too. So the feeling was entirely mutual. Now, because I had an orphan heart, I'd been forgiven, but I wasn't free, I was striving every single Sunday night with these young people. Striving is the number one symptom and sign of the orphan heart condition. I wanted to build the greatest youth group in Nottingham. I wanted to be famous for having built the most amazing youth group of, I don't know, 500 teenagers. The only problem was, every time Sunday night I went into the church hall to teach those teenagers, they, once I opened my Bible, would turn their backs to me, face the wall, and read their magazines. I think it's safe to say I wasn't getting through. And I came out in spots. I had pains in the chest. I had pains that ran up and down my arm. I thought, flip, I'm 26, and I'm going to die. These teenagers are about to kill me. So I went to the local GP, my doctor in Staplewood, I said, I've got all these symptoms, pains in the chest, shooting pains in the arm, spots appearing in places that spots should not be appearing in. What is my problem? He said, is there any stress in your life right now? <laughs> I said, yes, I'm running the youth program on a Sunday night. He said, that would do it. Didn't offer me any kind of advice, didn't offer me any kind of medical treatment. He was strong on diagnosis, weak on prognosis. Yes, that would do it. So I then went to a friend of mine called Gordon Lingard, and I said to Gordon Lingard, would you please help me? He was a vineyard pastor, and in my view, though I never told him this, much more spirit-filled than me. So I said to Gordon, Gordon, what would you do in my situation? He said, well, I would take all of these teenagers to a Youth for Christ rally in Derby. They'll see three or four hundred teenagers on fire for Jesus, lost in wonder, love, and praise, and yet at the same time, extremely cool that will have an effect on them because clearly you are not getting through to them. The man had a great ministry of encouragement. So what did I do? With these six teenagers, I bribed them with a free McDonald's meal. I said, if I buy you a wonderful McDonald's happy meal, kids, would you come with me to the Youth for Christ rally? They said, yes, yes, anything for free food, just entertaining me, but also filling their own stomachs. They came along to the Youth for Christ rally. We were in the nosebleed section right at the very top. So it was me and the six teenagers. And indeed, it was the case, just like Gordon had prophesied, there were about three or four hundred teenagers, very cool teenagers, all lost in wonder, love and praise. And while they were praising, I was standing, singing the songs, but under my breath, in my heart, looking at these six teens, was saying, with not very much love, Holy Spirit, get them. Holy Spirit, get them. Holy Spirit, get them. I wasn't saying it out loud, you understand? That would have been rude. But I was saying it quietly <laughs> under my breath. I was multitasking, singing the songs, but saying quietly in my heart, Holy Spirit, get them. Only problem was a song struck up I'd never heard before by Ishmael, and the song went like this, Father God, I wonder how I manage to exist without the knowledge of your parenthood and your loving care. But now I'm your child, I'm adopted in your family, and I can never be alone, because Father God, you're there beside me, and I will sing your praises, I will sing your praises, I will sing your praises forevermore. And while I was praying, under my breath, not very, very lovingly, Holy Spirit, get them, Holy Spirit, get them, Holy Spirit, get them, guess what happened? <laughs> the Holy Spirit got me. Ten years of knowing Jesus but not the Father, what happened at that moment was I saw by revelation of the Holy Spirit, downloaded broadband without any kind of expectation whatsoever, that God is the most perfect Father who's adopted us into his family. He's our greatest cheerleader and encourager and he will always be there for us through thick and thin come hell or high water. And I was wrecked with that revelation. Now, I've been brought up in the big boys don't cry philosophy of emotional repression. So at this point, something rather embarrassing happened. I began to cry. And I'm not just talking about crying, I'm talking sobbing. Not quiet sobbing, but the kind of loud sobbing that even loud music doesn't seem to be able to disguise. 
So I'm now making these extraordinary noises as my heart is absolutely broken with the news that God is the dad I've been looking for all the days of my life. And there is snot everywhere. I'm not kidding you. You may be offended by that word snot. If you are, let's try something else. Religious mucus. Whatever it was everywhere. It's falling on to the floor. So the big boys don't cry, stiff upper lip, stoical, great British mentality, somehow didn't work at this moment, went out of the window, and worse still, the bones in my legs seem now no longer to exist. It's like the whole of my bone structure from my waist down is now made up of jelly. So not, am I, not only am I sobbing and loudly, but now I'm descending to the floor. I half, I half felt like saluting as I went. I could, see, I could see and feel, indeed sense, these six teenagers looking towards me and saying to the, themselves, that we knew he was barking mad, but now this is completely off the radar. But it ruined me for life. I had a revelation of the Father's love, interestingly, in the context of worship, as I saw that he is the perfect Father. Now, I'll come back to that story right at the end of my talk in a few minutes' time. But let me just say, there is a second stage. We are not supposed to stay in the in stage. Striving, attachments, addictions, misinterpretation, mistrust, selectivity, fantasy, all those other symptoms and signs. We are supposed to get our hearts healed up. We are the adopted sons and daughters of the High King of Heaven. He doesn't want us to lose out on our inheritance. The devil comes to rob, steal, kill and destroy. But Jesus came that we might have life and life in all its fullness. That is our birthright as the kids of the kingdom. But the devil tries to rob us of it. We are not supposed to remain with unhealed hearts. In worship, we can discover the Father. This is stage two. I call it the upstage. This is all about Him. When we take our focus off of ourselves and we refocus and realign our vision and perspective on the world's greatest dad, Abba Father, whom Jesus came to reveal. There are two great themes in the teaching of Jesus. Kingdom of God, fatherhood of God. Jesus wants all of us, before we start spreading the message of the kingdom of God, to really fall in love with the Father heart of God. When we do that, we will know our identity. We'll know who he is. And we'll also know how wisely and lovingly to use his stuff. This is important. So the woman is taken into the upstage. What does Jesus say to her when he hears her say, let's talk about worship? He prophesies over her and says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, Abba. The word means daddy. Why is Jesus allowing the subject to turn to worship? Because she's been looking in other men for what she can only find from her heavenly dad. If she has primarily got a wounded heart that's due to the absence of a father's love, if she's manifesting all the classic symptoms and signs of someone with an orphan heart, then what she needs to hear more than anything else is that there is a dad who loves her, who's adopted her into his family, who will be there for her through thick and thin, her greatest cheerleader, who b believes that she's not someone dirty from the cradle, but a princess in his palace. That's what she needs to hear. And that's why Jesus talks now for seven whole verses on worship. And he uses a wonderful word. It's the word proskuneo in Greek. And it means literally, I approach in order to embrace. Pros towards, kuneo to kiss to approach in order to embrace. Jesus saying to her, look, there is one in heaven who loves you unconditionally and who wants you to draw near to him in order to embrace him. And as you do, the promise is this, draw near to him. He will draw near to you and he will hug the hell out of you. This is true worship. We complicate worship. You know, I listen to seminars and workshops, I read books on worship, but worship at the end of the day is simply saying, I love you to the Father. That's all it is. I love you to Abba Father through Jesus in the power of the Spirit, becoming a thoroughly Trinitarian follower of Jesus, knowing that God Almighty who flung stars into space is the most amazing Abba, Daddy, Papa, Father, Dad, whatever word, 
whatever language of intimacy you in your unique story choose to use. He is the greatest dad revealed by Jesus and whose love is made known in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is the flame of love. This woman's captivated by this. She's got an orphan heart, but now she's found her heart's true home in the Father's love. And so what does she do? She moves from up to out. See, I am really, really, really suspicious of any teaching on the Father heart revelation that stops at in and up. I think there has to be an out. There has to be an out. It's not just about me and my wounds getting healed. It's not just about me having endless praise meetings and soaking sessions and listening to CDs the whole of my life and sitting in front of God TV. There's got to be more to it than that. There really has got to be more to it than that. So what does this woman do? Her heart's been captured by love. She goes running into town and she says these words, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And what happens? A harvest is kicked off. A harvest, a chain of grace is activated because one heart has been healed in the presence of Jesus with the great news that there is a father who loves her unconditionally, tenderly. There is a dad in heaven who loves her, who likes her, and who's especially fond of her. The best evangelists are people who are in love. The worst motivation for evangelism is guilt. The best motivation for evangelism is love. This is a woman in love. And she cannot stop talking about this man. And notice, she doesn't provide answers. She provides questions. She says, could this be... The Christ. I really think that's cool. Because sometimes, you know, we can be a little bit too obvious and a little bit too unsubtle when we're talking to non-Christians. And I think there's a lot to be said for being a little bit more enigmatic. Now, if I took you somewhere, I wonder, could it be that you will find? Could it be that Jesus is? Not providing answers all the time. We're known for that. But actually just... A bit of a could-it-be-evangelism. See, this woman, she's not been saved long enough to go to Evangelism 101 course and learn how not to do it. So she's, she's naturally supernatural in her evangelism. And I believe she's a very prophetic picture. Have you noticed that she is the woman with no name? I often used to think that's a bit unfair. She doesn't appear in Matthew, Mark and Luke. She only appears in John... She's just known as the woman of Samaria. I used to think that was unkind. Because there are men who don't appear in Matthew, Mark and Luke. They only appear in John, and yet we know their names. Nathaniel would be an obvious example. So would Nicodemus. So would Lazarus, and so we could go on. But this woman isn't given a name. I think there's something really prophetic, actually, for our times about that. Because I honestly believe, with all of my heart that the age of Christian celebrity is over and the age of the hero has begun. The age of heroes has begun. Now, what are heroes? Heroes are ordinary, nameless, faceless people gripped by an extraordinary God. They will never have God TV cameras trained on them. They will very likely never have a book written about them or a Christianity magazine article focused on them but they're going to be known in heaven for making Jesus famous in towns, villages, cities, businesses, hospitals, schools, workplaces. And they're not going to care at all about their own reputation, about whether their name is known or whether their name is not known, because all that matters to them in a town like Hastings is making Jesus famous. What we saw at St. Andrew's Chorley Wood when we launched all of these missional lifeboats and we stopped being a cruise ship, we saw hundreds of people gripped by the power of a great affection, taking the Father's love out to the lost in all sorts of extraordinary contexts. One of the things that's most delighted me since I've left is receiving a clip from YouTube of one of our missional communities from... St. Andrews, which launched in my time there. And it shows of a group of people, about 30 or 40 people, 
in the poorest parish around Chorleywood, in a place called Mill End, with a silver double-decker bus that they have bought and had renovated and turned into a mobile community center in a town where there is no community center. And it's got refresh on the outside of it. You know what's neatest about it? It costs 120,000 pounds, and they didn't pay a single penny towards it because a non-Christian businessman in the city of London who was experiencing, let's say, let's say this, experiencing the Holy Spirit without realizing it, said, hearing about this project, I think we'd like to pay for that as a business. So now they've got this double-decker, brand-new silver bus in Mill End. There's a mobile community center and all sorts of other things as well. It's just gorgeous. And it's there. It's been done by ordinary people whom you will never hear of. You will never know their names, but they've been gripped by an extraordinary God because the age of the heroes has begun and the age of Christian celebrity is over. And thank God it's over too. The church is experiencing its breakout as people get healed up in the Father's love, going from in to up to out. In to up to out. From me to him to them. You know what happened at St. Helens Stapleford? After I got up, from a pool of my own making at the Youth for Christ rally in Derby. Two of those young people left and never came back. Saying, and it's an old adage, it's true, sometimes before you can have some blessed additions, you've got to have some blessed subtraction. Two left, but four stayed. And within the next few months, we grew to 60 people, 60 teenagers, without even trying. And these were broken teens from the streets of Nottingham who just felt drawn like moths to a light bulb to the Father's love that was now pulsating on Sunday nights from that church hall. What had changed? I've learned over the years this lesson. It's a really good idea not to pray change them. It's a really good idea to, change, to pray change me. I'm, I'm learning this with my mother, by the way, right now. My adoptive mother... I've now got an opportunity of forming a great relationship with her for the first time in my life. She's 88, and I'm 49. Why? Because my prayer used to be, change her, God. But then God decided, no, actually, I want to change you, because in changing you, she will change. And that's exactly what I'm seeing happen all over again. I experienced something that I'll never forget. You know, sometimes God before he'll do a great work through you, has to do a great work in you. The old saying is true. I'd like to be able to tell you that this in-up-out cycle of healing has only happened once in my life, back in the 1980s when I was curate at Stapleford. And that from that moment on, I was perfect. I thought I was, by the way. I thought I was sorted. If you ever think that, you truly aren't. It's the greatest evidence that you're not, if you think that you are. I've been around this cycle a number of times. I'm not telling you how many. It's private between me and the Lord. My wife could tell you, but she's not going to. I've been a number of times around this cycle. These are seasons of the heart. And I'll no doubt go around this cycle all over again. The point of the matter is this. I'm committed to the journey of healing. And I know that in the hands of Jesus, by the well under the noonday sun, in the presence of the perfect man, I can entrust my wounded soul to him and get healed up. And every time that kairos moment comes to get more free, other people are going to get set free as a result of my freedom. And I'm telling you this, Hastings and other towns and villages around this great town are waiting for your freedom. People are waiting for your freedom. Even in your own family, they are waiting for your freedom. So I want to say to you, get healed for the harvest, because it really is harvest time. There's an urgency. Days of difficulty for the world. Days of great opportunity for the church. Let's rise up and say, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Whatever healing needs to come to me, to my marriage, my family, my kids, and especially to my own heart. Bring it on, Dad. I trust you. I'm not going to 
run away into denial any longer. I'm going to say, come on in. And even though there may be tears in the night, I'm looking forward to the joy in the morning. And let others bathe in the great and glorious radiance of the joy, joy, joy that comes into my world. I wonder if anyone could say amen Amen. to this word for the church to be healed for the harvest. Tremendous things going on. I will finish with this, and this really is one of my finally, finally, finally. The most exciting conference I've been to in my life was a few weeks ago in Bristol when Bill Johnson and I talked uh, to 1,500 people in the Colston Hall on being released. My emphasis was the healing of the heart because that's the mandate that God's given me. Bill's emphasis was the healing of the body, signs, wonders, and miracles on the streets, treasure hunting, and all the rest. What happened during that conference was extraordinary. As people got healed up for the harvest, you could not contain the people in that hall from going out onto the streets and praying for the healing of the sick. There was a revival in the center of Bristol. By the Friday afternoon, the sun was shining so brightly, everyone was out on the streets. Christians were out praising and dancing, praying for the sick, leading sinners to Christ, and even baptizing new believers in the fountains in the main square. I was pulled out of a meeting to speak to a busker who had father wound issues. Man is used to the streets. And he said this to me, and this was on the last morning. He said to me, Mark, I've noticed something. He said, normally I'm used to being beaten up by fundamentalists waving their tracts. And he said, it's not pleasant, and I don't welcome prayer from such people. He said, what came out of this hall this week had a wholly different spirit. The people that have come out onto the streets have come out with loving hearts, with tender, kind, and compassionate, bright, and shiny faces. He said, I've been prayed for three times, and I've accepted it three times, and I've loved it all three times. He said, there's something different in the atmosphere in this city. What's coming out of that hole, that hole, hall, is good for this city and for this nation. That's from a non-Christian busker. And then he said, would you pray for me? And I prayed for him, and the power of God came upon him. Because he asked me for prayer, because he could recognize the goodness of hearts healed up for the harvest. I'm telling you, this is really important. You either believe me or you don't. But this is really, really, really important that we get our mother and father wounds healed up and then people are waiting for our freedom. Amen.